This is the School Success Podcast, a podcast for school leaders to learn from other school leaders what's working and what's not, and to get inspiration and encouragement, as well as strategies to grow school enrollment, connect with families, retain teachers, recruit teachers, and everything in between. You guys are heroes, and I cannot thank you enough for pouring into this next generation that's coming behind us. My goal is you will take at least one thing away from every episode that you can take back to your school to make it better than it is right now. Please enjoy the School Success Podcast. Hey, School Success Makers, welcome to another edition of the School Success Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Slater, and I'm joined by one of my good friends now out of Richmond, Virginia, Mr. Eric Cook, who is the president for Society for Classical Learning. They're doing some awesome things in the classical Christian space, and he will dive into all of that here in just a few minutes. But before we do that, I do want to highlight our amazing sponsors over at America's Christian Credit Union. They're celebrating 65 years of service this year, and they provide essential school banking services and tuition financing programs programs for schools looking to reduce in their risk and administrative burden. And you can check out all of the stuff that they offer on their website, americaschristiancu.com forward slash schools. That's americaschristiancu.com forward slash schools. One of my most favorite things that they offer is the tuition financing loans that your families can go take out from their credit union, where if you guys don't have to worry about chasing people for collecting tuition throughout the year. They go get a loan from the credit union, and then you get your money up front as a school, and they will pay it off just like a regular loan to the credit union, and you don't have to worry about anything, and it doesn't cost your school anything either. So go check them out, americaschristiancu.com forward slash schools. All right, y'all, this is going to be a fun episode because we're going to dive into a lot of things in the education world, of course, and we're all going to be doing it with Mr. Eric Cook. So Mr. Eric Cook, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thanks for having me. It's going to be a fun one, and I always start with the same thing. Same first question, which is, if I was to visit some where you're at in Virginia, whether it's Richmond or anywhere else, uh, what would you say, Mitchell, you got to do this to have the full Virginia experience? Oh, that's a tough question because I've only been here a year. Well, I would say here in Richmond, at, at least, there's, you got to check out the, the breweries here. They're just a couple, <clears throat> within a couple of miles from our house, there's some really outstanding breweries. So if you, if you like good beer, good craft beer, you should definitely check that out. There's sure. lots to do in Virginia. You can hike, you can, you know, go see all the sites, but that's something here that I've really enjoyed, appreciated. And I'm assuming a ton of history, obviously, right. all, all across Virginia too, to dive into. If I, when my wife's a history graduate, so she's a, she nerds out on all the history yeah. stuff. So. <laughs> Very good. Awesome. Well, hey, before we dive into like some of the questions I'll, I want to ask you that I know we talked about, I'd love you just to give the listeners just some background on you, how you got to where you're at today. So let's hear about Eric Cook for a little bit. Yeah, well, so I, I got into education coming out of college when I had a pretty abrupt and dramatic conversion to Christianity when I was 19 years old. And up to that point, I thought I was going to be a millionaire, even though I was a mess of a human being. But the Lord changed my heart and then also changed my trajectory significantly. So I really felt a calling to to teach when that happened and changed my major and, uh, and then started teaching in, in public school right away. So that was uh, that was kind of a turning point f- for me and s- significant uh, experience that that has really driven me ever since just a, a calling to serve families and kids and and I think really invest in in their lives 
And I've felt that to be the most fulfilling work that I can be, that I can be doing. So starting out in public school, I was, you know, history, literature, Western Civ teacher. I was in kind of big suburban type school. It's pretty, pretty challenging environment to teach in. <clears throat> and I thought I was going to actually preach and, and be a pastor. So I was doing that simultaneously. And so that was probably two or three years of that. <clears throat> I was also trying to figure out what does great teaching and, and great connection really look like? And I have been taught a certain way, but was really questioning some of those more, what I call the sit and get, you know, regurgitation methods. So I started experimenting on my students a little bit and I had a real interest in philosophy and theology, started asking big questions, <clears throat> engaging students on conversations of ultimate significance. I started a philosophy club and just found students engaged in ways that were really surprising, to be honest with you. I, I felt all the students, regardless of their academic abilities or their backgrounds, cared about questions of human significance. What, why am I here? How do I tell right from wrong? You know, what is good and true? You know, what happens when I die? Is there a God? These questions I found my students really cared about, but they found no context in their education in most cases where that was being authentically discussed. And I felt like that was the most important thing to discuss when talking about education and all the other things we learn about it while in our in the course of our education are really rooted in those fundamental human questions. And so that that's what I discovered in the first few years of teaching that really changed another kind of change or trajectory for me as an educator and eventually got me into classical education. Man, because you jumped right in then from public school to leading a leading a classical school. Well, I went from being in a public school in Cincinnati, Ohio, to Faith Christian School in Roanoke, Virginia, which is a classical Christian school. I had a friend who was teaching theology there, and I was sharing with him some of what I was just telling you in a lot more detail. And he said, "Well, you do realize that there are schools now that have have been formed that are built on the foundations of what you're talking about. You need to come check it out." So went went to Roanoke and and uh, was blown away. I couldn't believe that there were schools that were rooted in great texts, rooted in the, the the gospel, and and was being renewed. And so I was I was drawn in right away. So that that's what got me, you know, pulled into the classical Christian world. Love it. So you're in classical education. You were leading. I know you end up leading a school in is it Texas or something? Yes, I was in Fort Worth, head of school at Covenant Classical for 13 years. Okay. And then, and then obviously, how did you get over to where you're at now at SCL? Well, as soon as, as soon as I became head of school, the former head of school at Faith Christian Roanoke was Sam Cox, and he was on the S, uh, Society for Classical Learning board. So once I got settled, I was only there for one year before I joined the, the board of SCL in 2010. And so I started getting engaged then and really thinking about what are ways in which this education become more impactful, more accessible, um, you know, to more and more people and how can we serve schools who are doing this and continue to grow it. So then in 2015, I became the uh, board chair and then the 2016 part-time executive director and that eventually turned into me becoming president. I did that for six years part-time while being head of school. And then this past summer of 22, became full-time with SCL and moved here to Virginia. Man. Yeah. All right. So those that are listening, because I know we got different listeners from every different type of school, those that are listening aren't familiar with what classical Christian education is. If you were to give them just kind of a quick, quick, just 
quick rundown on what what that is. What what is classical Christian education? Yeah, so the way I like to talk about classical Christian education is really about its purpose. So I use this quote from John Adams where he says, "There's two types of education. One teaches you how to make a living; the other, how to live." So classical Christian education is really about forming wisdom and virtue in in human beings. That's really the focus of it. So then, when you start talking about how do you do that, that's really rooted in the great texts, great ideas, the classical languages, classical literature that are the most formative aspects of growing a person who's wise or virtuous. Love it. And now the pushback I've heard from classical Christian, from people that I've, that I've talked to, because I've, I've loved just learning about it in the last few years and stuff. So I'll be like, and so I'm learning, so I'm not able to articulate it as well as everybody else is. So I'll be telling friends like, oh, this is what it's doing. And some of the pushback that I've gotten that I'm not obviously great at answering is why do we, why do we use the, these great texts? Like they're, they're old, not saying obviously, you know, Bible's old too, of course, but like, sure. like, well, wait, why, why use these old ones? Why not new things? Things have changed since mm-hmm. then. What, how do you guys talk, talk those questions through? Yeah, well, it's a fair question. And when I would read these with students in public school, what's interesting is I really didn't get those kind of questions as much because the, the heart of the classical texts are really getting at these fundamental human questions I was talking about before. What does it mean to be a human being? How do we interact in in it justly in a a society? And those questions are timeless. And so the texts that we're drawing from are ones that have entered into that great conversation of human beings, who we are, why we exist, you know, what is good, what is true. Those are the ones that we really continue to draw from and that have endured the test of time and are still relevant and will always be relevant because these fundamental human questions will continue to persist over time, you know, forever. Very good. All right. Well, thank you, sir. See, I'm learning and this is good. This is the interview is going to be good for me as well. So as we, as we take the, the knowledge you've learned over all these years and then also leading SCL, let's dive into some of the, the questions around the school world. So you guys obviously are, um, I guess we should probably actually say that for those that don't know. So SCL, what is, what is SCL for those that are listening, exactly what you guys function as and what you do for schools? Yeah, so our, our mission is to cultivate human flourishing by making classical Christian education thrive. So what we do is we want to see every classical Christian school that exists be optimal and be thriving in every way possible. So we, we basically do anything that could help a school become a thriving institution. So that includes everything from events and trainings and leadership development and consulting we're now, we've launched a, a accreditation. We're trying to give as much, many support and resources as we can, particularly to leadership of the schools to help them understand what they're doing and do it well. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, give them anything that they need to ensure their school is is operating in optimal state. Perfect. So taking that, we're going to segue into that first question that we talked about. So these schools that you've worked with, and you've also been in this space for a long time, what are some of the challenges you've seen kind of continually come up that schools are facing and up against, but also how are they like combating those challenges and getting through yeah. those? Well, so, I mean, one built-in challenge has just been the growth and the rate of growth that have happened in classical Christian schools. So in 2010, there were about 140 classical Christian schools, and now there's about 700. So that's, that's a 13 years um, from 140 to 700 is a remarkable rate of growth. Yeah. <clears throat> so COVID was then an accelerator, <clears throat> excuse me, to that growth, both in terms of enrollment and interest in growth of new classical Christian schools. 
So whenever you have schools that are growing quickly, you have a lot of challenges of how to meet the demands of that growth. So, for example, really small schools who get to that 200 uh, level of enrollment, a whole bunch of things just end up happening at one time that are really hard. So you might be renting a church, for example, and now you're starting to break out of that facility just by sheer numbers and logistics. Well, that means you have to think, rethink about your, your tuition model. You have to raise money. You have to have a master plan. You have to refine your governance model. You have to expand your leadership team to include people who are not being paid for by students who are sitting in the classroom. So a whole B ring of, uh, of leadership. Uh, you really have to refine your messaging and, and really how to operationally be efficient and sound. And that's a lot. That's a lot to do at one time. We have about 250 schools who are in that, in that phase right now, um, from that zero to 200. And they're all encountering these same set of challenges. And I'll be honest with you, making the same uh, exact mistakes. <laughs> a, a, lot of the, a lot of the challenges are happen at the leadership level. For example, what it means to lead a school of 150 as a head of school is not really what it's like at all to lead a school of 350 students. And if you're not conscientious about that, of how you're spending your time, prioritizing your, your, your efforts, and that's, that's especially true with a board as well. How do you manage the school, you know, when you have to be very operational and hands on because you don't have the capacity to lead the school sufficiently, but then you get to a point where that's actually holding the school back. Those are all transitions that happen in that 200 threshold. That, that one cluster of issues I've spent more time on from a consulting perspective. I've visited schools in over 40 states, and this is the problem I challenge. It's not, not a problem per se. It's, it's just a transition and progression as schools are growing, that they have to uh, tackle. So one of the things we can, we can do as an organization, as a centralized organization, is to say, hey, here's the common issues that we've seen. Here's the resources you need to meet those challenges. That's that's one of the things that we feel like we add a lot of value to. Is there a sweet spot in numbers that you're like, when they get to this, if you you kind of gotten past this threshold, it's more smooth sailing afterwards. Obviously, they're each going to have their own challenges. I think we you know, can all probably agree on that part. But is there, a, is there a threshold like the hardest numbers are this and the easier is this number of like students? Well, there, there's different ways of looking at that. So if you looked at that from, say, just the school culture perspective, you could say it's easier when the school's smaller. You know everybody. Um, you know, the relational connections make your ability to manage the institution and the community easier. Financially, it's more difficult. And then that flips when you get a little bit older, because when you have a, a more mature tuition model, you take some of the pressure off the finances, but managing the community becomes a little bit more challenging because you're doing it multiple layers out from the head of school. You have more people, more problems and, uh, you know, more logistics to manage, more facilities to manage. So it just depends on how you look at that. But if, you know, if the way we did this at Covenant, uh, where I was head, is we, we looked at, we, we have 54 acres. So, you know, we could be, we could have been as big of a school as we wanted to. But me and a few folks on my leadership team, we went and visited about 15 schools that were larger than us, everywhere from about 1,100 down to six or 700. And we just asked them all the questions and said, what kind of challenges have you faced? If you could go back and do it differently, would you, what would you see as an optimal number? How's your numbers impacted your culture? 
And so we came back from that, made a recommendation to the board that we max out at 520, which we felt like was a good number. And that's a K-12 number that allowed us to meet the goals of our mission, making sure every student was known and loved, that we could keep our class sizes at a reasonable amount, but also have enough robust programs and offerings that would provide an enhanced experience for our students and families. So school size has more impact on, on your school, school culture than just about anything else. You know, Tim Keller says the same is true in church, that your church size has a more significant impact than denomination affiliation, whether you're Baptist or Presbyterian. And uh, I thought it was, that's a pretty profound statement. And it's a really important question for any school to take seriously and resolve. All right. So I got a question. This is good. So I got a question for you. This is going to be, you know, a right, a right hook. You're not ready for it. We'll see if we can do this. Okay. So we're going to talk about sizes. If, if a school's listening and they're between this and this, what would your, what would like, what would you say that the, they're most likely facing and maybe some advice for them. So if we're like the first phase, maybe it's zero to a hundred, like under a hundred students, yeah. maybe the startup school, what would you say to them? And then the 200, maybe the 500, like, let's go through a couple different levels of like, Hey, they're typically challenges at having this challenge, but yeah. this is what they should be doing. And I thought, I know that you weren't prepared for that. Well, let's, let's just well, talk. <clears throat> so first thing I would say is there are two resources that, that school leaders could find. One is if you go and look at that Tim Keller article on church size and culture, it's really profound. I use it in my graduate uh, class at Gordon College. And then second um, is Managing Transitions by William Bridges, where he talks about the seven stages of institutional development and the five laws of organizational change. So the seven stages, you know, you get from dreaming the dream to launching the venture to getting organized to becoming an institution. And eventually you either go back full circle to dreaming the dream or you stagnate because you're trying to hold on to this nostalgic past. So the, the, the helpful thing about those seven stages is you can put yourself in that as a, as a school and say, okay, where are we right now size-wise? And what are the things that we've done that have allowed us to get to this point? And which of those things do we need to retain? And which of those things do we need to shed? Because one of the laws of organizational change that Bridges talks about is that if you keep doing the things that made you successful to pass from one organizational development phase to the next, it will be the thing that holds you back to get to the next organizational phase. So those are very helpful to be aware of, and every school should be conscientious of, of how the organizational structure, leadership, people, processes change as you grow in size and, and, uh, and infrastructure. So, so quickly, I mean, if you look at the, and, and, and Keller has these broken out, like house church all the way up to full-blown, you know, thousand plus, you know, people in the church. Because in smaller, everybody is kind of elbow to elbow and the expectations are fairly low. You've got people there who are pioneers. They're, they're, they're kind of in it to help form and create the things so you can get by with a lot. Everyone still feels like they're participating uh, in the project. And it's a little bit tiger by the tail uh, while you're figuring everything out. It's pretty stressful. It's uh, high capacity for those key leaders. And everybody's carrying a lot of weight, you know, to get past that point of viability, which is about 200. <clears throat> in that next phase, you'll have people who come into the institution who don't have that pioneer phase. They're looking for something that's stable and they're not necessarily the entrepreneurs who are signing up for, <laughs> you know, a new project. So 
the levels of expectation across the board go up. Like if you don't know what your curriculum is or you have a new teacher and all of a sudden, you know, they're starting from scratch and parents know that and they'll say, what's going on here? You know, or you or you run a chapel and it looks really sloppy and there's a lot of mistakes or your events aren't pulled off well or your communications aren't very good. Your website, all those expectations go up significantly, which means you need additional people beside your head of school to help carry out all those responsibilities. You have to start having a vision for building a leadership team that gets into advancement and operations and academics. And so you might have an academic dean or a new division head. And so really getting that organizational structure right, you know, is critical. Then as you get over 300 in that 350, um, you know, you have some of those things now in place, but you almost have to redefine yourself relative to your size. You have to revisit some of those core principles and make sure you're retaining those, but be very creative and adaptable in how they get applied. So, for example, we had a, a, a end of year event. We called a senior gala. Every senior got a charge that was about, you know, two, three minutes long. Well, at 12 seniors graduating, that works pretty well. At 32 seniors graduating, you're going to be there for five hours. <laughs> but this is like a treasured event. So what do you do? You know, do you keep it? Do you scrap it? Do you reform it in a way that could be, you know, preserved, at least the core of it? But the logistics of it are different. Those things, and every time you change one of those, you have to be prepared for people to say, well, you know, we used to be, now we've lost and we've, you know, we're, we're going another direction. And so people get nostalgic about the past and really skeptical about the future. So managing change is, is absolutely critical through all those institutional transitions. Man. So this, just what you said right there reminded me of just something I learned about. So obviously, you know, this where I'm currently visiting my family in Alaska where I'm from. And we, we were talking about one of the churches we we started to join and go to when we first had moved here. And we just found out that they changed the name of the church. And mm. it was like, I was like, oh, and I was, I was shocked, but, but like, you know, I think that was best for the church. I think they just kind of like, they've had so many things in the last 20 years or whatever. I thought they kind of just needed a, a rebirth, a restart. There's yeah. all new staff that are in there now. It's not even this. And so I'm like, I think that was best for the church and I think the name of choice was good. And then, you know, so it was one of the things like, but I know that there's people that were in that church. Oh, yeah. still go there. They're like, I, how dare you change the name yeah. of the church, yeah. you know? But I just feel like that was what they needed. They just needed a new start. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, but there's, I get what you're saying completely. Other people going, well, I'm not there. What's the say? And I'm not going to, you're way better with sounding off sayings really quickly, but I know people, you can't expect to do what you, do what you keep doing. You're going to be, yeah, have the you always get what you, you'll get what you always got. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, you have to change it up and you got to be ready to yeah. make tough decisions as a leadership team to get to a different place of where you feel like you're supposed to be, where God's telling you to be for your school. So, right. Uh, and that's, that's not easy because you're going to make some enemies, even though that's what you're doing. That's to, right. I don't think bad. It's, it's just, you're going to make natural enemies and people go to another place and help. So that's right. all good. Yeah. Um, um, so this is good. I like this part about the challenging part. So I think a perfect segue into like what's going good. So talk about that one. And I think that was extremely helpful. Like what have you seen now for these schools that are, that's going really good. Are there some cool things you've seen yeah. school recently do, <clears throat> excuse me, that really surprised you? You're like, wow, like I need to share that one. Cause I think other schools could be also doing this thing. That's going good. Well, I think one thing that's going well is that, is that now the movement has been around long enough where there's about 200 and 60 schools that are 16 years or more. So that has added a level of stability 
and, and the ability for some of those more seasoned leaders and schools to give back and, and help refine what we're doing instead of just being in survival mode, like the first, mm -hmm. you know, phases we were talking about. Now you get a more established, settled, you get some clarity, you get some stability and, and then you can start to really refine different areas of your school. And you can also help others who are in that same boat, you know, within the broader classical Christian community. That's been fun to watch. It's, I think, you know, there were so many, there still are, but especially in the front end of the movement of trying to define what is this thing that we're doing? What does classical really mean? How do we do it in a way that's really consistent and faithful? That's not just, you know, ethereal and sounds really good, but actually pedagogically in the classroom, you know, can be done and, and be done in a way that is clear and consistent. And um, so there's still a lot of that work to be done, but that's gotten a lot better. There's more resources, there's more support organizations, there's more curriculum providers, there's more, you know, consultants, support organizations that are helping schools do what they're doing really well. There's a lot more scholarship, there's research, there's been a whole infrastructure around the development of these schools that's given a lot of momentum. And, and, and that's been encouraging to watch. And I see a lot of people from the outside now, people who are donors and foundations and people of influence who see classical education developing and seeing the results and are really believing in it, investing in it in ways that are exciting. So there's a lot to be thankful for right now. Amen. I love it. Anything, is there anything that you've seen at one of your, one of your member schools do that maybe it was just out of the box like or not? Uh, yeah. Out of the box. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Like it was very different that you're like, Oh, I never thought about doing that. And it worked it, whether it's maybe it was a fundraiser, maybe it was something to help grow enrollment. It was a teaching a different way of teaching that maybe had never seen or heard of before anything. It kind of like just random that like people go, Oh, I never thought about that before. Well, that's an interesting question because classical Christian schools are probably less on the front edge in terms of doing something way out of the box, innovative in that regard. So nothing immediately comes comes to mind. I mean, there's been some pretty, I think, creative um, in, in instructional strategies and, and cultural formative things that are happening in the life of the school, but none of them necessarily strike me as so far outside the box. So I'd need some time to think about that one, but. No, all good. All good. Well, any, any other things you want to share on the, on the things going really good part before I, I, I wrap up with my last question? Well, I'll say too that I'm, I'm, I'm really encouraged by a, a whole host of young leaders that are emerging mm -hmm. and I, I'm, we still need a lot more of them. So that's definitely one of the, I would put in the challenging and the encouraging box. But, uh, you know, the number of, of really capable, motivated, humble, godly young leaders that, that are coming out, I, I think gives me a lot of hope and promise for the continued growth of classical Christian schools. So that's, that's a big encouragement. So a question that just now, because you said that question for, for you, the, obviously people talk about the teacher shortages across across America has the classical Christian space been hit with the same thing and if if so is there a suggest is there some advice that you think is to help get more teachers into into the space and let's maybe talk about that te the teacher side real quick well so I, I had this interesting conversation about I don't know six or eight years ago when I was in Texas I was in Austin 
And there was a political organization that uh, wanted my feedback on on some uh, questions of what motivates teachers and we need to increase their salaries in the state. And and so I said, well, you do understand that while while teachers want to get paid more and should get paid more, I said, that's not primarily why teachers enter into the field. And what they really need is a compelling vision as to why they do what they do and then give the support of resources they need in order to do that really well. So what is that? You know, what, what is that in the public school? What is that in in our schools? And if people if there's a teacher shortage, you have to look at what is the reason why people don't want to do it anymore. And if they don't have a compelling why, if they can't see that, if it's not being articulated to them well, then, you know, you can throw all these other kind of logistical things to try to fix it, but you won't get at the at the root. So I think in classical Christian schools, we have as compelling of a why as any educational model that I know of. You're talking about it's a very high calling. And, you know, when you talk about what we used to say at Coven is the teacher is the text, meaning from Luke 640, that when the disciple is fully grown, it'd be like his teacher. So we have to be the kind of person that we want our students to become. So that's as, you know, and if wise, if wisdom and virtue are the aims, then, you know, then it's on us to be able to demonstrate that, to embody that, to incarnate that. So that is a very high calling, but it's a really compelling why. It's really fulfilling, important work. And I think that's the vision that needs to be renewed for why, why it's important and critical for people to come into this field with a vision for it. So. Yes, we have experienced that. I think more of the issue is not that we don't have teachers who are interested, but we don't have enough teachers who are equipped to step into our schools and be prepared to teach with the classical Christian understanding, philosophy, and pedagogy under their belt. So we're having to train them internally to get them prepared to do it. But there is a lot of interest. Man, and that's a super good point too, Eric, because our church that my wife and I go to, they're they're really good on on vision and saying, here's the here's what we're doing and here's what we need that make me go, Well, I want to be a part of that and yeah. I want to do it. And then they give you the tools of like, here's exactly what we need you to do to help us. And I feel more confident. I feel mm -hmm. more at peace with what I'm doing and I have more fun because I don't have to think about all these other things because it's just they've literally given me what I'm supposed to do. And I would kind of yeah. relate that to the school thing going, here's our vision, here's what we're doing. Here's what we need you to do. And then here's the here's the the box that you can play in to be you as a teacher. And we yeah. will love you and support you through it. If you can give a teacher that, oh my gosh, yeah. you know, they're gonna yeah. it's like yeah. the ultimate for them. Well, so, I think um, high levels of expectation and high levels of support, you know, for, for teachers, really what you want for a student as well. You know, hold them to a high standard, but give them everything they need to meet that. And uh, those are those are culture shaping dynamics, you know, that are really important in school. I love it. Well, as we wrap up then, Eric, if you were to share a piece of advice with the school leaders listening, what would that piece of advice be? Well, so I teach I teach a class uh, through Gordon College in the master's program on leading, managing and developing people. And we we have a phrase in there that we talk about uh, a lot. And, and it and it goes who you are is how you lead. And, and so a lot of the focus of the class is about what does it mean to be a wise and virtuous leader and, a, and an absolute necessity of doing that is to know yourself. 
really to invest the time to know your strengths, your weaknesses, and how those impact your ability to lead to lead others. And really coming honest terms with how those impact your ability to com- communicate, to discern the right from wrong, to connect with people, to empathize, even to complete you know, all the tasks that you have in front of you are ultimately rooted in character issues, not necessarily competence issues. So really, you know, digging into that as a starting point and taking that seriously has a profound impact on, on your leadership. Man, who you are is how you lead. I like that. That's, that's like a, I'm going to tweet that out later. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. I appreciate it. Um, I, I appreciate you taking time to coming on coming on today. I know you are a very busy man, you got, especially in this season of life that you're in, and we're summer vacation, wrapping up summer vacation and all that. So, just thank you for what you're doing all these years, pouring into the students that you poured into. Just wishing you obviously nothing but the best as you continue to do that with your family, with all the schools that you're you're over and you're leading. And I uh, just appreciate you very much, man. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Well, another huge shout out and a thank you to Eric for taking time and being on the podcast today. I love what he's doing over at SCL and I'm wishing him nothing but the best as he continues to be a great resource for all the schools that are a part of their association. And if you're a school that needs great connections of different people that can be a great resource to you, we have those and you can reach out to us directly at schoolsuccessmakers.com. That's schoolsuccessmakers.com. We have partnered with some of the greatest businesses out there that serve schools and love schools, and we'd love to be able to connect you with them to give you help in terms of if it's growing enrollment, if it's fundraising, if it's strategic planning. We have the great connections, and we'd love to make sure we get you connected with them. If you're looking for just community in general as a school, we'd love you to join our private Facebook community called School Success Makers. That is on Facebook, private community just for school leaders called School Success Makers. I am personally in there, and I'd love to see you in there as well. And then this fall, it's coming up very, very, very closely here. We are launching our newsletter called the School Success Report. The team has been working super hard on it, and we are stoked to finally start launching that on a weekly basis. So make sure you go to our website, schoolsuccessmakers.com, and get yourself on the list so you start receiving the School Success Report when it comes out. That'll be all about highlighting school leaders, giving you guys some great articles on how to be better educators. We'll, be, we'll have some giveaways, some fun prizes there's we're just gonna do a whole bunch of fun stuff with that newsletter just to say thank you for how awesome you guys are as school leaders so make sure you don't miss that when we launch it and i think that's it guys gosh there's so many fun things going on in the world of education so i hope you guys keep doing some awesome things i know if the school year is right around the corner if, if not maybe it's already even started for you guys where you're at i know it starts at different places across the country but we'll be back here next week with another awesome guest as usual on the school success podcast we'll see you then